what's up? Uh, what's going on, beautiful people? Welcome back to uh, Free Game Productions. Um, as always, it's an honor to be doing it, especially out of my my place. Um, we have Melissa Joy Kong, who now I've known for a good bit of time, but feel like we have a, a super incredible connection. Um, she spent the the weekend with myself and Danielle and, and our people, and we just had an epic, beautiful, magical weekend. So Melissa is, um, she's just speechwriter, storyteller, um, started off working in major magazines, went into a startup, and then writes speeches for high-profile, high-individuals. Um, so tell me how you got into that, and then um, how you got into where you're at now. Some people have a very linear journey. I did not have a very linear journey. So I, I fell in love with media at a really young age, print magazines in particular, because to me, they represented almost these portals of who you could be. And over time, I started to read them and think, this isn't quite the best way for young women to think about themselves, read about themselves, think about themselves. And I want to be part of changing that. So for probably the first 25 years of my life, so like, you know, from 11 years old to 25, I was really passionate about going into the media world and changing how women thought about themselves and perceived themselves by creating different media outlets for young women. And then fast forward, I'm about three years into my career and I end up being the brand manager for Sports Illustrated Swimsuit, which is about as 180 degrees as you can get from the yeah, original mission. 180, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I had this moment where I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I went away from that into the startup and technology world and ended up taking some of those media skills and storytelling skills and applying them through the filter of marketing and have really loved that. But there's always been this part of me that's just been so passionate about storytelling in so many different like um, veins and channels and industries. Uh, so but yeah. what makes a good story? Obviously, there has to be conflict. Nobody wants to see a movie where the hero wins the entire time. It's boring. Yeah. But I think I think what what makes a good story, like the the nuances of what makes a good story, depends on the medium. So it's different in a movie than it is in a book than it is in a speech, and it just depends on what you're trying to say and the story you're trying to tell. So not all stories are the same. A lot of people in the movie world. And often in the book writing world, the, the fiction writing world will say hero's journey is one of the most popular ways that you could write a really good narrative. And it is for sure. But there are nuances of storytelling that are that can add color and vibrancy to what a story is that don't necessarily have to follow a hero's journey at all. And I think some of those elements are about, I always say one of the most important things in the way that I tell stories is I use a lot of parables so parables, metaphors, how can you tell a story to illustrate a point without illustrating the point itself? And I think that's a really powerful tool for story. So why do you think, um, obviously it works for Jesus, um, but like, why do you think <laughs> parables are such an effective way? It creates a little bit of a buffer for people to actually hear and integrate what the lesson is in their own way. Okay. It's sort of the difference between a parent saying, don't touch that hot stove. Probably it's going to make you want to try to touch the hot stove. If you've never touched one before, you don't know how painful it is. But if you say, you know, this one time when I was at a campfire when I was five years old, I'll never forget roasting some marshmallows for a s'more and putting my hand at the tip of the marshmallow while it was still lit on fire and I burned my finger and the finger to this day, I'll still feel this, that uncomfortable sensation of the heat. And it reminded me how important it is to be respectful of the fire and to not get too close to it. That's an incredible story on the side. Just, just, <laughs> that made me not want to put my head on the stove. Um, Do you see? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So but it's you, very different. Me without telling me. Right. And for a child listening to it, they're going to have, they, now they get the associations, not of my, my parent is telling me to do something or not do something, which of course, part of a child's journey is to rebel. It's a natural part of a child's journey. Now it's, they have the sensorial information. They have the visual information in their mind of the story and they get to pick apart what works for them. So maybe for them, it's 
oh, whenever I see a hot stove, I think about the feeling my mom was talking about on my finger. Or whenever I see a hot stove, I think about a marshmallow, but how it burns your tongue and how you have to let it cool down first. So it's different for everybody, but when you give people a story, it allows them to extrapolate what's meant for them. And story is so much richer. And because we're all so so different in a lot of ways, it allows room for people to find their own meaning in the lesson or the way that they take out of it because of the extra detail you added. So I just um, I just heard about this study. Shit, I should have wrote it down so I could remember the name of the guy. I actually sent it to Jesse. Um, I sent it to a bunch of people. Um, I want to say it's a NASA researcher in the 60s. And they found out that 98% of children are geniuses. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, they did like a study with them and let's, I, I'm going to. I've you, heard about this study the, recently. You, okay. I'm going to send it to you too. Yeah. As they watch children grow and they study them as they grow, the percentage. By, by the time they become adults, only 2% are geniuses still. Mm-hmm. And they blame a lot of it on our education system. Mm-hmm. We teach the genius out of them mm. because, and I was kind of like, what the, you know, why the fuck does that happen? Um, hearing you say that, I, let's say let's say good intention. I don't know if it is, but we'll just say good intention. Because from an infrastructure standpoint, it's easier to just tell people what to do mm-hmm. and not have them question you than have them come to it in their own roundabout ways. Mm-hmm. And I think when you tell a parable, my guess, and I'm going to talk to Dan Lerman about this or some other neurologist, but my guess would be there's synapses being created. Mm through their artistic or their reception of your artistic lesson, mm-hmm. right? So they're creating their own pathway to the lesson. Whereas you just tell somebody, even if they do receive it, it's just a lazier pathway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of it. It's very much the way of schooling that revolves around testing. But it's important not to demonize the education system because while there's a lot to work with and learn from in the education system, so much to improve, at least in the U.S., there's a lot of good that comes with it too, with the structure, with the socialization, with the order, with the routine, a lot that you get that allows you to find rhythm Mm -hmm. and balance. And there's, there's beauty in that too. I actually think a lot of the there's some really interesting school systems, some of the big ones like Montessori, but there's there are many different modalities of schooling for ki- for you know kids and young adults that I think are fascinating and would be interesting to apply to the workplace. Yeah, so my understanding, Daniel and I probably want to homeschool, but if we don't, we want to do Montessori. Mm-hmm. But that's teaching in a physical sense or in a different sense, almost meta- like parables mm-hmm. or like metaphors, right? right? Versus multi opportunity for multi sensorial experience. Yeah. So not everyone learns the same way. So it gives people the optionality to learn in different ways depending on what works best for for them. Right. So, but again, I think it's apparent that the current education system has to change. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, not to demonize it, but something has yeah, to change. Right. For sure. If if we're teaching out ninety eight, if we're teaching out that level percent of genius. That's um, interesting, though. Um, I'd be curious to see what the numbers look like if you look at different schooling systems. So, like Montessori, like what are their what are their genius numbers look like if you were to run a study with right, that right. group of kids? To me, it's a lot of it is about um, socioeconomic availability, and to me, it's the education system doesn't need to change, but a lot of the public education system needs to change. And the public education system is built in a certain way. I mean, there's really interesting data about this, how how that came, how our education system publicly came to form. And it aligns with a lot of what happened during the Industrial Revolution, where you need people to be cogs in a wheel, quite right. literally. So a lot of the schooling system was built for that in mind. It was very intentionally designed. When 100%. it was designed, it just doesn't work anymore. Like Horace Man, Dewey, all those guys. Mm-hmm. It was intentionally right. it was intentionally made to dumb people down. Yes. 
Well, and it was well-intentioned because it was all about productivity and efficiency, which were interesting motivations for that part of American history. It just obviously didn't evolve. And that's the hard thing about big systems like politics and education is it's really hard to change those systems quickly because they're so, once they're embedded into society, they're really embedded. I will, uh, reading, again, I used to be a teacher, so like I took a bunch of classes. I, I don't know how well-intentioned it was. I don't know if it was ill-intentioned, but I don't know. Hmm. Like, again... Is it well-intentioned to create somebody to be a cog in a wheel? Well, maybe not. Not, not for the individual. For, yeah. the, for the wheel it is. Yeah. I guess perhaps we can say that it wasn't necessarily well-intentioned or ill-intentioned. It was just intentional. It was just intentional. It was intentional. It was intentional. Right, right. And, and it had to happen because it happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And it got us to where we're at. Right. Um, right. And it's, it's kind of like the way you got into media because you wanted to change it. I got into education because I wanted to change it. And honestly, I thought it was, and I did it in an inner city in an at-risk socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And um, part of it was the education system. And then a huge part of it is that community. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, the one I was in, I can only speak for the school I was in, parent-teacher conference, two parents showed up. Mm. So like my heart goes out to the teachers. Right, like, mm-hmm. I just remember two parents showed up, and it was mm-hmm. the two parents that, like, I'm happy I could talk to, but I didn't need to talk. Like, those kids were great, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And it was like, of course, so you unsurprising. Guys, yes, yeah, of course, you guys are here. Up. Yeah. Um, so it's got to be creating opportunities, and I think storytelling and arts could be an outlet because, right? We don't want to throw the ba- the what is it, the baby away with the bathwater, mm-hmm. because what you said is true. There is something to be said about structure, doing what you have to do, getting things done, even if you don't want to do it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, that that, you, that is very useful, right? And um, so how do we, I mean, this is probably a loaded question, but how, do, how can we use storytelling to inspire because if somebody was a genius before and they lost it, then they could refine it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Do you have um, Do you have a goal that you want to do with your storytelling? There's so much in what you just said. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, the I mean, Dan Lerman would be a great person to talk to about genius because we we forget that we categorize geniusness. It, it reminds me so much of when you go to a museum. A lot of people say that art is subjective. It's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. When you look at something, everyone sees something different and beautiful. Some people like certain pieces of art. Some people don't. Some people like certain styles. Some people don't. And yet you go to a museum and it is categorically not subjective. Like you walk in, some things are roped off. You can't even go near them. Other things are just in a hallway on the way to an exhibit. And just even in the space of where you put things in a museum, you are telling the people who view it how much it's worth. And I think the same thing is true about the education system in a lot of ways, about um, about how we think about uh, genius, that we, we tend to just categorize it that way. We forget that even the word genius comes from a place where we've built a system to measure genius. And the system to measure genius is just a system. There are many ways to talk about someone's ingenuity and geniusness that has nothing to do with what can be measured or what is currently actively measured on like a Likert scale or something like that. What's a, what's a Likert scale? Likert scale is like, you know, from a scale from like one to 10. Okay. You know, where where would you rate yourself on X, right? So uh, IQ scores are not Likert scales. They're, those are very different measurements. But the, but what I'm saying is they're all just tools. They're all just... They're all just... What do IQ scales uh, measure? Oh, gosh. I think there's like... Uh, I, I'm not going to answer this question the right way, so I won't even attempt. But it's, the, it's like multiple different sectors, like critical reasoning, mathematical ability, verbal acuity... And those are not the way that they would be described in an IQ test. There's very specific a very specific rubric for it. But um, what I do know about IQ tests and testing in general is that, again, it's very closely tied to socioeconomic status. So just even 
the words you speak. So something I learned at a really young age is that um, there is a correlation between parents who earn below a certain threshold and the number of words that they'll speak to their children. They speak fewer words. So the... Do you think they're depressed? Um, I think that there's just a lot, a, the confluence of a lot of different variables. So you can argue that poverty forces energy away from from depth and presence because you have to worry about literal survival. So you're thinking, I mean, part of it is an education challenge, right? The lack of, um, you know, understanding of many words to use. Like if people don't speak to you, then you don't, you don't have as big a vocabulary. So there's how that passes on generationally. But it's also like, what do you do when you're working, you're a mom raising three kids on your own, working two jobs, you're exhausted. You're going to tell your kids, come to the dinner table and you're going to sit and eat and you're going to be like, don't, don't eat your food that way. It's very directive language. Whereas when for a higher, and this is correlative, so we can't necessarily say that it's causal, but when you're in a higher socioeconomic bracket, you're more likely to share, exchange more words and more questions with your children, which allows for the synapses in your brain to develop very differently. So there's an interesting like tie-in there as well with education is, is not just what happens in the classroom, but what happens when a kid comes home. Okay. Um, I think we're getting somewhere with this. So physics shows that no matter what, is being observed, it is affected by the observation. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what, right? So there's no removing that. Okay, so we become aware of that. So I think teaching people that in a macro scale of like, hey, we have to have measurements, but our measurements don't have to be what's best suited for you. You know, find find a way, boom. I think that there's something to explore down there if there's any future educators listening. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that helps spark something that Melissa just said. And then in the home, now this is the thing, is it's tough, right? Like it's easy for me to say from this position right here. How do we, or not how do we, how does, I mean, I like to be part of the solution, but so the mom that's working multiple jobs and has kids come to the dinner table. I would imagine like YouTube or some of these like Jim Rohn things, like listening to books on tape or motivational things or hopefully podcasts like this, right? Um, best, best, case, best case scenario is you hear some thought-provoking things if, if you are one of these individuals. What's been done is done, but if you can move forward and get your kids to maybe storytell, and maybe that could be your your life, your life force revitalizing you. Like as you work for the kids, you give the kid the, the floor to, right? Because sometimes kids teach the parents. I mean, so, so many times. I think that, I think what you're getting at, like the answer to a lot of it is very simple. And I always try to find this when you talk about really complex topics, like how do you fix the education system? It's like, well, where do we start? You know, whenever I start to feel like something is a little too overwhelming, I'm like, what's the simplest form And the simplest form of what we're talking about is just curiosity. If you don't necessarily have, if you're a parent who doesn't have all the resources in the world to help your kid get a perfect education or uh, you can't control what happens in the classroom because you live in a zip code where there's only one option for schooling or you don't know who your kids are going to interact with and whether they're going to be good or bad influences, it's like if there's any one thing to instill, it's a genuine sense of curiosity about the world because if you can instill that and the importance of that and the excitement of that then we live in a world where your ability to learn is infinite right like that didn't always used to be the case but now the literal library of information in this world is available at your fingertips in your pocket which is really special but if you don't have that inherent curiosity to go seek those pathways and learn a little bit more then um, it doesn't really matter that it's there and that it's available. And here's the thing too, right? Everything's out there, but so is every distraction. Of course. So if you're curious, you're going to be more susceptible to distraction too. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, you have to like somehow, right, give them bumper, gutter bumpers, yeah. whatever, mm-hmm. 
without telling them, right? So you have to create a parable on how distraction and, and stuff like that. But that's the work is it's not supposed to be easy. It's just supposed to be worth it. Mm-hmm. And what level? So we were talking the other day and, and it's no secret, right? Like love is the key to the universe. And my issue with that wasn't like, it, it was just what do people mean by love? Right. So my association mm-hmm. due to an English translation is I think of love as like a romantic love. That's my natural go-to. But the Greeks have seven forms of love. And the one that the biblical love, when Jesus says love the neighbor, love God, that is is agape. Mm -hmm. And it's empathy and understanding. There's philo, um, which is like brotherly love. And that's where philosophy comes. And that's kind of like brother energy. Like, yeah, let's go learn some shit in our own weird way. Um, Which is me. (laughs) Like, like, and and, and you, right? It's like brother-sister love. Like... Um, John Carroll, right? Like, like there's so many good people. So how do you, how, I think curiosity is one of the factors in love, right? Like, as you said that I wrote down, like curiosity and care, what level of, how much, how, how do you, how can you help somebody guide their curiosity and stay disciplined? Um, increasing the depth and breadth of experiences because that inherently builds curiosity. Um, it, re- it reminds me so much, like I keep coming back to this like metaphor. Like again, I think a lot of metaphors of uh, the metaphor of a recipe where recipes can be really great, but they're very structured, very masculine in their essence. If you think about them, because it's like you follow this step, this step, this step, and you make this thing. I've always found that Whenever I look at a recipe, I'll work off of it and then I'll add my flavor. In. I like that. You know, like I'll, I'll be like, I need a little bit more salt here. Or I don't actually think I should use sour cream. I should use whipping cream. You know, or it's like little changes. And it, it means that you take risks. That's an inherent curiosity. Curiosity is like a very feminine kind of energy of like, ooh, well, that's not true. It can be both. It can, it can manifest very much in like curiosity. Go explore the world. Go get. Go experience. Go have. And then there's this other, like, let me draw the energy that I need into me. Like, oh, let's explore that a little more. Let me pull it out of you. So push versus pull energy. But I think recipes are a really good example of the importance of structure and having some sort of guardrails or a place to start and then building and changing and evolving from that thing based on your personal preferences or what you think is going to make something taste better, right? Or 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 feel better. Um, so I, that kept coming up when you were when you were talking about about that part and then um gosh we can go in like a thousand different directions which direction do you want to go in (laughs) so what i'm thinking right now is um how like in cooking and stuff like that the feminine creation and the the flowy nature of it makes it better Mm. right and then and then as you're saying that i was like right and then there's sometimes when you cannot deviate from the plan Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but like baking I wasn't even thinking about cooking. I was thinking about like, but yes, like yeah. baking, yeah. Um, right? So you can't. So some. So you, as a person, you have to have the discernment. Yeah. Everything important in life is a paradox, and it's not so much about like figuring things out. It's about learning how to live with it, with the duality of it. That would change my life, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Paradox. Um, I was in an astronomy class in undergrad. My father's a scientist, and I used to think which is funny because I'm so, like, follow the signs. I lived in such a structured right or wrong, black or white, X's and O's. And and I always did my best to be curious and stuff. And I was taking an astronomy class, and they were giving hard science, and they were talking about a paradox. And I was like, wait a minute, so it's going to be contradictory and still true. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Like, right? That that learning, that, which is funny, my friend Andre says, words are not descriptive, they're creative. Mm. And it created a whole new world for me. Mm-hmm. So, like, stories are, are creative, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's one of the biggest inner battles I fight is um, needing to remember that so much of the way that I think about the world in my brain is black and white. Do I choose this or do I choose that? Should I go here? Or should I go there? It's very dualistic, very like this or that, here, there, now, later, um, up, down. And it, and then you remember that there's infinite possibilities that for any question that you ask yourself about what could happen. And it can also be both. 
You can love and let go. You can go up and then down, down and then up. You can um, have really structured containers with a lot of fluidity within the container. So it's like it's always kind of a mix of it. And I, don't, I think it's just important to hold the space for all, all of the paradox that there is because it allows room for a little bit more possibility and curiosity. And as meaning makers, human beings are meaning makers, everything that happens, we get to choose what it means. Mm-hmm. What it's it, about all we get to choose. It's about all we get to choose. In Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, that's like the point of it though, mm-hmm. is even in the worst situation, right? He's in a concentration camp. Everybody's dying. Um, just terror, right? Like mm-hmm. terrors I can never imagine that I hope I never have to experience. Um, but it's, it's, it ends up being like the most inspiring, hopeful book because this whole thing is like, at every given moment, you get to decide what it means to you. Mm-hmm. And when you find the beauty and the struggle and the chaos, then there's beauty in the struggle and the chaos, and it mm-hmm. gives you a way to empower yourself through. Mm-hmm. And he says, before people died, they would start to view it in the negative, mm-hmm. and inevitably they would die right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and, 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 and to all those people's defense, I get it. Mm-hmm. I think that goes back to when we were talking about education of like not, you'd not use the word demonize, but I said that because a lot of people do demonize the education system. And it's, it's hard when you start to do that because you create polarity where there, it's not necessarily the best energy out of which to iterate and create something different. So whenever, cause otherwise then you're just, okay, if the education system is bad, then we need to reinvent it from the ground up and make it totally different versus saying, okay, it just is. And there are things that we can, say work and are meaningful for certain situations and people and then there are other things that don't work and aren't necessarily meaningful or helpful for certain situations and people certain ways of learning so it's like and there are i think there are some things in life that are hard and fast lines like one of those is violence you know i don't really think there's you know a lot a lot of room there it's like it's a very for me personally a very hard line of like yeah you just don't you're either coming from a place of love or or not and love very rarely is not the right answer but a lot of other things in life where we create um almost this 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 like layer of ego that makes us want to label things as good bad right wrong it's just it's just a mirage it's not real and the more that we can dial into to what's to like different possibilities for how we can look at things, the better meaning we're able to make. And it's part of the reason why storytelling is so powerful because storytelling very similar. Like if you ever had a moment in the past, maybe you were, you, you were still growing and learning and emotionally developing where let's just say you had a relationship or a coworker or a friend. And it was so easy when something was wrong to just kind of project it onto them, like make them the the thing, right? There's something about, the ability to take what's happening inside and project it to something on the outside to create a, a gap, a little bit of space between ourselves and the emotion, the thing, the situation that allows us some sort of ability to process. I don't know what it is about us as humans that we need a little bit of space to be able to process. I think that's one of the shadow sides of it. Projection can be one of the shadow sides of it. One of the beautiful ways to integrate that natural inherent need for space in story as humans is when you use parable, when you use metaphors, you create a little bit of space between what the internal experience or lesson is and how you're communicating, sharing it and using it as a mode to connect in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Of course. I'm going to offer you a possible paradox. Okay. Um, so I think violence. I'm curious about how to hold space for it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, um, everything's supposed to happen. So, I kind of like violence, mm. right? And it's easy for me to say when it's not happening to me. But I love boxing. I love jujitsu. I love wrestling. My boy's going to be in a bare knuckle fight in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Right? There's an art to that and there's an agreed upon. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the masculine that there, violence has to have a container and an outlet and not everybody has to understand it. But if it's not given that it will come out somewhere else. Mm. Right. Cause it's in nature, like mm-hmm. bucks, buckheads yeah. and like, and yeah, there's going to be casualties. Mm-hmm. 
But what we've become in modern society is so afraid of casualties. Mm. And new things can't grow unless other things leave. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's like, because violence can be one of the greatest teachers when it's done intentionally. I mean, even when it's not, just not in the good teaching way. Um, but if I'm boxing or I'm doing jujitsu and I'm not paying attention, there will be a physical reminder to shut the fuck up and pay attention. Mm. And like, for me, that's good. Yeah. Right. And, and it's yeah. like, but, but again, it's a, I understand the violence you mean. Right. So I agree. Yes. With you. Well, and it's so much of a male and female energy. One of my favorite writers, <clears throat> she wrote a book called gone girl, which later became a movie. A lot of her writing is about, uh, strong female characters who, actually are quite violent in nature in some way in a way that's very different than what we're used to seeing for female archetypes in book the book in the movie world and I just love her as a writer and I remember reading one of her blog posts entitled I was not a good little girl and the first line in the in this blog post or one of the powerful title really powerful title and she was writing this post to explain why she writes the kinds of books that she writes. And I might butcher a little bit of this story, so I'm paraphrasing it. But she basically said... Who's the author again? Um, she wrote Gone Girl. I'm drawing a blank on, no her, no on her name right now, but um, it'll come to me. She said, if you see two men get into a fight, you know somebody's going to get hurt. If you see two women to get, get into a fight, you know someone's going to die. Yes. And I think that goes to show what happens when you keep emotion trapped in your body. For men, one of the only acceptable emotions to express is anger. And violence is a lot of the physical manifestation of anger, that rage energy. One of the only emotions it's not acceptable for women to express is anger, rage. And so when you bottle it up, it becomes something very, very different. So I do think there's a, I got the a, when you a that. place for it, but it's interesting what happens when we hold emotion in the body. So it's my belief that sports are so important because they allow men the opportunity to experience more emotion than just anger. Shout out Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> we love you, Aaron Rodgers. We love you. Um, but the, but for, for men, I think the best gift that we can give men in our world is more space to express more emotion. Otherwise, it's going to get stuck in the body more room to express vulnerability, sadness, um, pain, jealousy, all, all of those emotions, like the full spectrum of it. For women, I think it's, it's really important in particular that we give women more room to express anger and rage in ways that are healthy so that that doesn't stay stuck in their body. Because there's nothing more potent than an angry woman who's stuck in the anger. So I don't know if you followed Vailana, um, Avi Marcus's mm-hmm. wife. Mm-hmm. Um, Danielle like loves her, loves her. Um, and she's a very powerful woman. She's big. I think, sorry if I call it the wrong thing, ladies, don't get mad at me. Um, stomping, swamping, mm-hmm. um, it's this angry dancing and they like, I, mm-hmm. I did it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, not really my thing, but like, I get it. Yeah. Um, but it's like that they dance out their anger. Mm-hmm. It's like angry dancing and they're releasing it and they totally. do their women's groups and it, yeah. whatever. I don't get it. I don't need to. Yeah. Um, well, in general, if you're wrestling with it, there's so many ways that you could move it somatically through your body. I mean, one is just like pressing really hard against a wall. Uh, another that I do is like, I, I don't do this often, but if I'm really feeling it's something is built up in me, I will, I will go into my bedroom and go into a pillow and I will just rage scream rage scream into the pillow and it's 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 almost to the point of like my throat hurts but it's really cathartic because like really to every woman listening to this podcast when was the last time you rage screamed like let yourself do it and if you're really willing let somebody witness you i think they do that to women's groups I, again i'm not allowed yeah. to be here it's but. it's crazy what happens because it's just not an emotion that women express in the same way that it's so rare for a man in our world, not 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 necessarily in our circles, but for the average man to have a really emotional conversation and to physically cry and like be in a ball and like be held by another man. It just doesn't really happen, you know? And it doesn't necessarily have to, but it's just interesting that we don't, there are certain borders and boundaries to our emotions that we don't even touch or play with and we don't even think about it. We don't even question it. So what's um, in the ancient Greeks and like, like um, Spartans and um, 
you know, if you read the the Odyssey or the Iliad, the best warriors were very emotional and like cried openly, and they were often warrior poets. And modern society, I think, again, we'll say good intentioned, but whatever, um, has created this. separate black and white view of if you're this you're that mm-hmm. right like and 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 you see it all the time in like modern politics or anything and that's where sports are a healthy outlet of it the problem is then people become obsessed with sports and like in an unhealthy way mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and I think the key is we just people, we embody it. We give these conversations out and, mm-hmm. and people can look into it, you know, the histories of these things. But it's because men were like, they would cry, like, again, like, yeah. they would cry, they'd be affectionate, they would whatever, but they didn't lose that masculine role. And what's happening now, in my opinion, is we're softening up men to a point where we're going to become unsafe. Mm. because we keep telling men now that like right like before you couldn't cry so now they're not also expressing their masculine traits either mm. and it's like you hurt my feelings all right dude fucking deal with it mm-hmm. right or like it, like I, but but that doesn't mean just bottle it up it just means like i don't know dude deal with it like and, and i don't mean that like negatively just mm-hmm. all right mm. i think i think that has more to in my experience just more to do with lack of belonging and purpose and over yeah. over indexing on distraction and numbing so it's not necessarily what do you mean like, over indexing um meaning it's it's all too easy in our world to like the the phrase that's coming to mind is like in relationship in a relationship between a man and a woman specifically that the man's role is to uh, like own the direction and the woman's role is to own the depth and if a man isn't leading well you're just going to be in deep shit and so there's there are some inherent roles that men and women play in their male female dynamics, which of course isn't set in stone because right, all right. of us carry masculine female some of the best, energy. Some of the best warriors could be like Joan of Arc yeah. or women. Or, but I think but, what's happening in our society right now, in heterosexual relationship anyway, this plays out differently in in different v- versions of relationships that are outside of um, the classic heterosexual relationship. But uh, what's happening is that. <clears throat> And I think this is very generational and very collective. Women are in an experience right now where they are, they have been raised by a generation. So like millennial women in particular, uh, and probably maybe Gen Z as well. They've been raised by a generation of women who experienced that first wave of really big liberation, like the 60s, the 70s, like freedom. And those women were raised by a generation of women in the 40s and the 50s that were so confined and constrained to their roles. You're a housewife, you're the cook, you clean. So it's like you can see the waves generationally of what's happening. Right, no freedom to no structure. Right, and then, and the way that the women in the freedom stage raised then my generation of women is you are independent, you are sovereign, you can go and make your own money. You don't have to be your grandmother in the kitchen. And also, you don't have to, you know, play by some timeline or a, ma- a man's rules in a man's world. You can go your own way. And you started, and there's been waves of this, but this is my, this is what I hypothesize about part of what's happening right now. And Scott Galloway does some really interesting um, work around the opposite, which is the, the male side of this equation. But so now you have women controlling both the direction and the depth. Because that's what they, that's what we've been taught is important because we can't, it's not, otherwise it's too confined, too constrained. So if as a woman you want optionality, freedom, choice, then you have to be willing to play, to play both roles. It's a very subtle, largely unconscious energy, but I do think that's a lot of what's happening and it's quite literally pushing men out of their role. It's not women's fault. It's just part of the dynamic of what's happening because women are auto like course correcting for the places in which men used that structure and that natural directionality in their in their purpose as a way to control. Men have to become more masculine again though. 
yeah, I think I think men and women just that need to become more balanced it, again it and create a little bit more room for each other again. But what I would say, right, is like, so what you're saying is women are doing both. And then I know from Danielle's thing in women's groups is like these women are, are doing these things, mm-hmm. but they really want these traditional roles. Yeah. Like they end up realizing to that. To some extent. Right, right. To with with the right man. Right. So, you know, when I met Danielle, she was da 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 da, no, I don't. And now you tell, ask her, she's happy as fuck in the traditional right. role. Right. But like, I'm, right. I'm a, Mm-hmm. But like sometimes I gotta put my foot down. Mm-hmm. This is what we're doing, mm-hmm. right? And and I think yeah. what's happened is we could say it's it's not women's fault. I don't care like whose fault it is. But I hear it all the time, and it's like men don't have a right to tell women what to do. Men don't have a right to tell women what to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. But like the current system's not working. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think what happens when you're a man who's in your secure your secure masculine is that it's not that's not even the language of like men tell women what to do. It's that right. you powerfully create the structure and the directionality to allow the woman freedom and femininity. That's it that's really what it is. It's like the balance of those two things. That language that we tend to use is part of what keeps us stuck in that kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. dynamic. It's it's different than that. It's like, uh, you know, if if men are the car, then women can drive it. Yes, you know what I mean. Yes, it's like yes. They, they can be in the car. They can enjoy the ride. They can have an adventure. And it feels good for us to allow that. Yes, right. It's like you're right. like like I want to provide. Let me provide for you. Right. Like I'm. Right. But like. Yeah, and a lot of that comes back to, the the the, reimagining and refining of purpose and meaning and belonging. Um, Instead of using and again, I think it goes without saying is we're just using men and women in general, yeah, right? Yeah. Like there's exceptions, right? Of course, of course. I, I know we know, yeah. but I'm just anybody yeah. listening. Scott Galloway's work is super interesting. He says a lot of the challenges we're facing in Western society you can attribute to young, uneducated, poor white men, uh, and it's worth listening to him go down that rabbit hole. But it, but thinking through. Right, because too often we have the conversation on a micro level, like with our girlfriends and our guy friends, about oh, this guy. I went on a date with this guy, and he was X, Y, and Z, and he was terrible. Or I went on a date with this woman, and she was crazy, you know. And it's like we have to get away from the micro and understand that there's a bigger collective patterning happening, and it's it's trickling down into our micro experiences in our lives. So if we can understand the bigger macro picture, then again, it creates a little bit of that space for us to see things more clearly. And personalize it a little bit less. And I think with um, good protective masculine energy, then the garden is safe for people to express themselves and climb the hierarchy, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But like you said, what happens is in that, to go back to the beginning, in that place where the woman has to work three jobs and take care of the kids, she's not safe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. From like a hi- mm-hmm. Maslow hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. So it's, again, men have to do better on this sense is like stick around, honor your obligations. Um, and like provide this. And then again, like, you know, women, like you're not stuck. It's not the fifties anymore, mm-hmm. but like, but there is a certain dynamic that, that I think operates best and allows people to be themselves in, in a safe environment. And then gives the masculine provider um, a productive purpose, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, cool. Like I'm, you know, I'm the king of my castle. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm taking care of my. Ca- and the key is take care of your castle, mm-hmm. right? And if you don't take care of your castle, then then something else will happen. It's funny as I'm saying that Danielle's calling. She's labeled my queen um, in my phone, right? So like, it's like, like I, you know, you got to honor it, and I do. Um, but it, it, it's just, it's a cool thing to play, right? And and everybody's, we'll say everybody's trying their best. And if they're not, shame on them. It, it comes down to the same thing for both men and women to just like kind of uh, put a put a beautiful bow on like this very complex and nuanced yeah, yeah. topic. It, it really just comes down to getting clear about who it is you want to be and making sure that as often as you can, the things you do and say and the way that you are with people aligns 
with that vision of who you want to be. Like that's like the simple two-step process for for start up, starting to create more alignment and reintegration of those roles that maybe feel a little out of balance right now. And we all have work to do. Like I don't think there's a single one of us who does everything we say we're going to do. Right. Most of us don't have a clear vision for where it is we want to go. But those two things alone can change the trajectory of an entire life and an entire family and an entire community. If you can really understand that the most important thing in the world is other than deep presence, like doing it all with the energy of deep presence is have I really spent time thinking about who, where I'm, where I'm go, where I'm trying to go, who I'm trying to be. And in every moment, even the small stuff, like how you show up online at a coffee shop, you know, how you answer 100%. an email. Is it, is it representative of that vision that I have of myself for where I'm trying to go and who I'm trying to be? So I had uh, Carlos Vivas on here. Shout out, Carlos. Um, he was drowned, saved by dolphins, met Jesus, wow. God, and he said um, the form of quote-unquote judgment or evaluation, whatever you want. It sounded more like an evaluation than judgment. Is you re-experience every interaction you had from mm. the other entity's side energetically. Mm. Now, like, just energetically. Mm-hmm. And, like, and he mm. said, like, and, and I was like, that makes sense. And he said, yeah. basically, in this realm we're in, God was this, people are going to get, like, repulsed by it. But, so I don't know what else to call it, but, like, a supercomputer mm-hmm. or um, a super measurement taking thing Mm -hmm. just constantly sucking up and sending back the energy Mm. just like the just a constant non-stop calibration of Mm -hmm. all moments Mm -hmm. just like energetically Mm -hmm. keeping the score yeah and like i don't know score is not yeah kind of score this is a game Mm -hmm. free game um but like life is a game i I believe and and we play it and we play it our best Everything is kaleidoscopic. You give it a quarter, like of a, a quarter of a twist and you see something totally different. And it's not until you're willing to turn the dial all the way to take a look at every little quarter twist that you get the full picture of how nuanced it can be for everybody, which really is, in essence, in summary, story. Like the minute as a writer, as a producer, as a songwriter, no matter what art you're making in the world, no matter how you're telling your story, there's, there's an important moment for great artists where they learn that the minute they release it, it's not theirs anymore because you're sending it out into the kaleidoscopic filter of the world and everyone is going to take what they want to from that story. People are going to project their things onto it. People are going to misunderstand and misinterpret what you were trying to communicate. People are going to take beauty out of it that you didn't even intend as the artist to put into it. It's going to be made so much more beautiful by what other people, by the meaning other people make of it. But that is the power of story really is that once it's out in the world, you realize how kaleidoscopic it all is because one book can mean so many different thing, things to different people. One speech can mean so much to different people. And yet we all know that there's a feeling underneath a book like, or there's a feeling underneath a movie that when you recommend it, even if something popped for you different than another person, there's something it leaves you feeling. And that's, that's, I think, at the, that's in what the we're bottom of for. it is that, that like, the, the true essence of what something is. That's what we're searching for. It's, it's how does it feel. Yeah. Right? Happiness is the way we feel. Yeah. Fulfillment is the way we feel. People want to be rich because it makes them feel safe and powerful. Mm-hmm. Everything is how we feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we intellectualize it, but it's all about how we feel. Yeah. It's all about how everything feels. Um, it's, it's so trippy. Like it really is, and and God, I appreciate this game you created of life, mm. even when I don't understand it, mm. even when it's dark. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah, it, it's. Um, do you have you read Rick Rubin's book, the the book he just wrote? I don't think so. I think you get a lot out of it. Okay, Rick Rubin, if this ever gets across to you, <laughs> dude, I want to hang out. Mm. He's so cool and wise. Mm. Rick Rubin's so cool. What's the name of the book? Um, the Art of Creativity, or let me. Let oh, me, it's a gray cover. It's a it's, with a little circle on it. Yeah, so that that's yeah. a that's an alchemist symbol. Yes, I know what you're talking about. It's a very plain cover. It's beautiful. It's the alchemical symbol. Yeah. Of um, um of 
the sun, I think. It's like the or creative way or the creative way. It's not that it's something else, but yeah, I've heard, I've heard it's a really beautiful book. That book's come up probably three or four times in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. On your ride back. Yeah. Check it out on Audible. Okay. And cool. do you ever watch Rick Rubin interviews? No. He's Santa Claus. Okay. He, um, he's so fucking cool, man. Um, you know who he is, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and he's got the beard. You don't realize, because I didn't realize, when he doesn't wear the colored glasses and you see his eyes, mm-hmm. he has the most childish, and I mean this in the best way possible, mm. lively eyes you've ever seen. Mm. Like, like, like you see the excitement in him, and like, <laughs> like, like everything is interesting. And yeah. it, and like he like talks about like making Red Hot Chili Peppers album, making beat, making Jay Z song, or like whatever, and just like he's just everything you've listened to that you liked, he was like a part of. Yeah. And you don't realize it because he's never like put himself in the scene. He's just behind it. And he's always like, you'd be Jacob, right? He's like always behind it. Just mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. drinking a beer, smoking a blunt and just like, just part of it. And it's, I, I just like that dude's vibe. But uh, the artist way or the, the creative way, something like that. I think it's the creative it's way. Yeah. And, yeah. and I got to look up it, but it's an alchemical symbol. Mm. And you've read The Alchemist? Mm-hmm. Um, the Alchemist. So Danielle and I believe we shifted timelines. Uh, during one of our ceremonies and I had just processed something and it was literally about alchemy mm-hmm. and Danielle because we're on the same wavelength goes Luke and the alchemists what do they say alchemy is literally at the same time and I was like they say it's when lead fulfills its purpose it gets to become gold mm-hmm. Right, and then literally the the sky and everything changed, mm. and everybody was like, "What the fuck?" Just so, but I mm. felt like we pushed us. Maybe in our parallel universe, shit was about to end, and we are now in like a better one. Mm. That that's how it felt. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many good books. Do you have what's your favorite book? What's your oh favorite gosh. story? What's your favorite story that you're not a part of, or maybe you're part of? Mm. That's something I should have started with as a storyteller. The one that speaks to me right in this moment is the book Wild by Cheryl Strait, or Cheryl Strait. Um, I read it a long time ago, but and it's a beautiful book by Cheryl who Strait. Um, she also wrote this beautiful book called Tiny, Li- Tiny Beautiful Things or Tiny Little Things. Amazing book too. Just it's so good, so rich with like great little stories, great little parables. Um, but the reason I like that book is is probably different than why most people like it. I like it because in the beginning of that book, or or the it's the prologue or the epilogue, she talks about how the experience she was writing about happened many years before she actually wrote the book about it. Like I think it was like over a decade long, and she went back and had to kind of go through journals and like relive the experience again. I remember reading that book for the first time right after I came off a trip in 2013 where I went around the country to interview married couples all over the U.S. And I was like, I'm going to go figure out the answer to love and come up with the formula because obviously no one smart has ever tried to write about love before. So I'm like, I'm going to go figure out the answers. And I was in that like mid-20s energy of like a little green. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was trying to find models for understanding love at the time. And I my intention was to write a book right after that journey that was going to be about what I learned from the couples, you know, maybe integrate some of my own stories in there. It's now 2023. And, um, that first time I was coming out of a really bad heartbreak, which sort of catalyzed me going on that journey. And then fast forward 10 years, um, came out of another really decimating heartbreak and had my younger self in 2013 known what, her older self in 2023 was going to go through. I think she'd be like, I'm out. I'm not doing, I'm not playing this game. It's important sometimes that we don't know what's coming. And yet here I am on the other side of an incredibly painful year. And I'm like, it wasn't, the book wasn't supposed to be written because this, this arc of the story wasn't ready yet. So I think about Wild and Cheryl Street a lot because she wrote so honestly in that prologue epilogue about sometimes needing to let things have space before you can write about them. And now that I've had a whole decade to think about the arc of what the book is really meant to be, how it was really meant to come into form, it feels now like it's time to write that book. 
um, in a way that feels deeply true rather than just a book that you write to write a book. So uh, I just, I guess for me, I love that book right now because it goes to show that every, everything has its time and its place. And in both um, Liz Gilbert's Big Magic and Rick Rubin's new book, they touch on very similar points, which is if an idea, like ideas are just in the world. And if you're, if an idea comes to you and you activate into the energy of making it into physical reality, then, then it's yours to run with. But how often do we see a business idea, a book, a podcast, and we're like, I had that idea. Well, the idea doesn't care whether you bring it to life or not often. It just cares that it comes into form in the world and it is expressed and said. So if you are not going to act on it, it's going to go to a different person who will then go act on it. And that's why that, that energy shift happens. That's how both of those incredible writers and artists talk about it in their, in their books. And what struck me is that for the last decade, the book has never left me. So I know it's mine to tell. But then it's now it's just like, okay, now that I know the full arc and the full story of the book, now it's just sitting down and actually telling it, kind of meeting the femininity of knowing it's my story with the structure of sit down and, and write and, and the writing will come to you if you create the structure for it. That was really powerful. Um, immediately when you said the if you knew what was coming, you would be like, fuck it, I'm out. I think of that with um, that's the reason why we're not told our future. Mm. Why it's, it's dangerous to know your destiny or your future mm-hmm. because you're going to put a timeline on it. Yeah. Or you're going to put, um, or certain obstacles you're going to think are not part of the journey. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we're not as wise as the way. Mm-hmm. The Tao is like the ultimate. They say like the Tao is older than God, mm-hmm. the way is before. Yeah. Which is right? It's chicken or the egg. Who cares? Yeah. Um, but they're right. You can't have the universe without an observer, totally. which is which is the trippiest yeah. scientifically proven thing, right? Like, the way has to be there for God, and God has to be there for the way. Yeah, totally. And it, yeah, it it I you saying that just remind. I don't know why, but the lyrics to this AJR song came into my head. It's like, you know, life is so hard. Can we skip to the good part? And I love that song because it's like, no, we actually can't because it's all good parts. It doesn't it's always quick. feel good. It doesn't always feel fun, but it's all good parts. Like this, it's 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 why when so many of us go through deep rock bottoms, deep pain, deep trial, we don't wish it on anybody. But we also a lot of times say it was it was the wildest, best thing that ever happened. It was like the best pain that ever happened to me because you needed to alchemize whatever comes next. Like it's all good parts. And, and I mean, I got the chills just thinking about something we talked about yesterday, me with completely good intentions, right? And I do this all the time and it goes back to the dream I was talking about, or maybe I was talking about in this or upstairs, I go underwater and help people. But by wanting to help people, I'm robbing them of a spiritual lesson that's coming their way mm-hmm. and it might not be fun. Right. But it's theirs. And the desire for you to want to help is more your story than it is theirs. Right, because I want to be a helper. I want right. to, because your ego wants something from it in some way. Yeah, whether, yeah, whether it's helping or an out. Like you know, I I've experienced that in in important relationships in my life where I, I wanted to like help them out of it, but it's not mine to do. It's somebody else's journey to have, and sometimes you just have to be there to witness it, love it, and let it go. And that ties into the telling versus being the parable. When we just are the example, we're teaching through a parable. Hmm. And when we help them out, we're telling them. Yes. And that's why it doesn't stick. Uh, We take the genius out mm. of them. So Melissa's been (laughs) um, helping me learn how to speak to the feminine by just her presence. And I would like to think I'm helping her with the masculine Mm. um, and and the balance of it, right? Like not to coach out the animal of the other person. Yeah. Like I'm a wild dude. Mm-hmm. But like I'm a good dude, but like I have to be a wild dude to get the shit done that I need to get done. Mm-hmm. Like there's a certain fire that's needed to build the pyramid, yeah. right? And then the pyramid's pointless if there's not somebody to mm-hmm. make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were an animal, what animal would I be? I don't know, some kind of like bird. Hmm. I feel like you'd be singing songs, hmm. which kind of ties into the, um, what was his name, Akir? Mm-hmm. Uh, Akir. Akir. Shout out to Akir. Um, <laughs> Who said, like, you seem like you'd be a singer? That's right. It's through your storytelling. Mm-hmm. And we're going we're gonna to tell stories together. We are right now, but we're going to 
give it a year or so, guys. You're going to see some shit. <laughs> um, with, like, the team, too. And uh, we're actually right at the hour mark. But, and I know you got to get going. Yeah. But, um, but, but this was so much fun. And, guys, keep your eyes open. And some of your favorite speakers, I don't know. Can we name drop? Yeah, you can name a few. Um, so, Melissa is a, was a speechwriter for Jesse Itzler. Um, who are some others that you... There's a couple, a bunch of other like uh, leaders in the business technology world that speak and... Um, do you help Drew with his speeches? I do. Yeah. Dude, Drew just gave a fire speech. Yeah, he did. My ho- really shout out to the homie Drew Lidecker. Yeah. Nine figure man, just doing crazy things. You might not have heard of him, but this dude is the real deal too. Yeah. Um, it's do, fun. Yeah, yeah. Just so many people that you might not know or, or if you do... This is the one helping them piece their stories together. She was explaining to me how I speak. And we'll, we'll get to that later. But um, thank you for everybody that, that observes and listens. And hopefully you get something and it helps you be a better you. That's awesome. All right. End of free game productions. Go Jets. Oh, Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Melissa, Melissa says hi. <laughs> hi. <laughs>